My name is Ed Goldberg. Welcome to Author, Author, an occasional series of conversations with authors touring through Portland or whom I have reached by phone. My name is Ed Goldberg, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Susan Mailer. Susan, welcome to All Classical Portland, at least on the phone. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ed. I'm very happy to be on your on your program. Okay. The title of your book is In Another Place, uh, with a subtitle, With and Without My Father, Norman Mailer. Your name is Susan Mailer, and the book is published by Northampton House Press. Norman Mailer was your father, and I suppose a lot of people's eyeballs will open up when they hear that. I was thinking today, when you look back on your life with and without your father, do you generally have a good impression of what your life was like with him? I had a complex impression of what my life was with him and without him. With him, it was it could be wonderful, and it could also be difficult. And uh, that's one of the things I talk about in the book, about how when we were together, it took us time to to get used to each other. And then once we were used to each other, I had to go back to Mexico, mm. where my mother lived. And that's when I was a child growing up, up until I was about 11. And then uh, I spent a couple of years with him, uh, living with him. And then I got used to, we got used to the kind of routine that most children have with their parents. But then I had to go back to Mexico after two years, so... I would say it was a complex relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, most people have complex relationships with their parents, but this, I think, uh, is in a <laughs> yet another category from what most of us expect. Now, early on in the book... Yes. Yeah. Okay, early on in the book, yes. you, this sentence, Mom left Dad when I was 18 months old. Can you fill us in on what happened there? Yes. My, my mother and father hadn't been doing well. Their marriage hadn't been doing well at all. He was famous. He had written The Naked and the Dead, which was, and became a celebrity overnight. And my mother, who also had ambitions, felt that she was not up to being and didn't want to be Norman Mailer's wife, only that. And she tried doing other stuff, but it was very difficult for her. Then she had me, and everything was okay for a while. But then they, he, my father started having lots of affairs. When my mother found out that he was having a, a serious affair with Adele Morales, who later became his second wife, she picked up and left and went to a hotel and never went back to him. She did, That was it. They, they separated. And I was about 18 months old then. I would say that day or the day after, she met the guy who would become her second husband, Salvador Sanchez, and she went on a trip with him three weeks later after she met him to... To Mexico City and left me with my grandmother. So that's what I meant. Your, your parents were, they met in Boston, yes? Yes, they met in Boston at the steps of the symphony orchestra. And they were a pretty charismatic couple. They had friends, they were outgoing, they had a good social life, and then the war intervened. This was 1941, and your mom was a wave, a Navy wave, and your dad went into the Army, which I suppose was source material for the naked and the dead. Absolutely. When he was when he was in the army, he could have been he could have gone to officers training, but he decided to to go as a as a soldier, and he enlisted as a soldier because he wanted to find out what it was like to be a soldier in the army, and he felt that being an officer wouldn't wouldn't get him there. He already knew that he wanted to write a novel, and he wrote to my mother, practically I would say three or four letters a week, and my mother kept all those letters. That was the plan that they had. It wasn't serendipity. She kept all the letters. And when he came back, that was the material that he had to write his novel. 
on the other hand, my mother went into the waves and had a wonderful time. She, she remembered that as a wonderful period of her life. You and I are almost the same age. I'm actually a little older than you are, and everybody I knew either went through the war or was on the home front, and uh, there were some similar stories, uh, you know, to a certain degree about how the men were when they came back from service. And this whole thing now, we, yes. we, you know, we have a name for it. Now we call it PTSD. But in those days, it was That's just right. being sullen, withdrawn, and not speaking very much, and not wanting to talk about their adventures in, in the service. Yes. Was your father like that as well? You know, it's, it, it's interesting you ask that, because I asked my mother, I asked my, my aunt, my father's sister, my Aunt Barbara, if my father had come back different, if he, if he was different when he came back from the war. And neither of them could remember that he was any different. They all felt that he changed when he became famous, that that was when the big transformation occurred in him. But I have a, I have a theory that he did change, that he came back a different person, because he was a, a guy who was five foot seven. He was very skinny. He had been coddled by his mother. He, he went to Harvard. He was an intellectual. And here he was in the Army with big guys who were really tough, who had grown up on farms. And, and he was the worst soldier in his platoon. And he felt really bad about that. So when he came back, he, that's when he created that tough guy persona that most people know, know him for, the swagger, the Irish brogue, womanizing, because before that he, 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 he wasn't like that at all. So I would say that the Army did change him quite a bit. But it wasn't noticeable until he became famous. Yeah, uh, fame. It's, 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 I've never had the problem of, of having to deal with it. I can tell you that. <laughs> He went to uh, the Sorbonne on the GI Bill, and uh, it yes. seems to me, and he had a novel accepted for publication, it seems to me that in many ways this life story is, is, is a dream for a publicist, a, a GI who wrote a, a successful novel, who spent time in Paris after the war. and This is, uh, as far as, you know, it used to see the pictures of novelists, uh, and the picture on the back was they had their old army jacket on, and this was, he was like... Like his friends uh, James Jones and William Styron, he had that same, I don't know, when you looked at him, you got the same feeling from him that you got from them. I don't know if that makes any um, sense to you. Of, it does. It, the kind of feeling that they were on top of the world, that they were stars, that they, that, that, that they were important, and that they felt that and they knew it, and that they were also at the center of their world. When he was at the Sorbonne with my mother, which, by the way, was one of the, also was, was the, was another time in their lives when they were very happy together. After that, everything sort of fell apart. But when, when they were at the Sorbonne, they went to cafes, they met with all the expats that were there. And being in Paris at that time and being an American was being somebody important because they were on the GI Bill, but they, what they got was a lot of money for Paris at that time. The same was true for, for, for Jim Jones. I'm not so sure about Styron because I think he was too young. I don't think he went into the Army mm into the Second World War. I think he was in the Korean, but, but he had also that kind of persona of being somebody important and being somebody who had to be reckoned with in the world. Now, you mentioned that you, your mom went off to Mexico and that you went with her, but uh, well, you, were, you were left with your, uh, your aunt or your grandmother, your grandmother? I was left with my father's mother, uh-huh. yeah. uh, my, my grandmother Fanny, and we were very close. We grew very close to each other. I think she was already very close to me. And, and so was I. And so I was with her for three months while my mother was in, in Mexico, touring the country, so to speak. And 
I think when she came back, when my mother came back to pick me up to take me back to Mexico, I think that was a terrible moment for me, going back on it, going back and thinking about it. Obviously, I don't remember, though that's not the kind of memory you have. It's not an explicit memory. It's the kind of memory that, that stays in your body. So what I describe in the book is how every time I looked at a certain picture when I was growing up, I would get a, a, a funny feeling in my belly. I would feel like I didn't want to see that picture. I would want to turn, it, turn over the page. And later on, when I was writing the memoir, I asked my mother, when was this picture taken? And she said, it was taken the day I went to pick you up to take you to Mexico. We were in Long Branch, and you had been with your, mom, with your grandmother for three months, and I came to pick you up. And it, you know, it was like all these bells started ringing. And I felt like crying when she said that because I realized how wrenching it was for me to leave my grandmother. Not only my grandmother, but my surroundings, go to another country, a different language, all that. But I ended up loving Mexico. I still do. And now I live in South America. I live in Chile. So my life took a completely different turn than it would have ordinarily, I think. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Now, at, at some point in your life, you were doing trips back and forth to Mexico when, whenever necessary, including long road trips with your father, driving back and forth. Or, yeah. or What was that like to be in the car with him all, all those miles, or all those days, going back and forth? Did, did, do you have fond memories of that? Absolutely. That's one of the chapters in the book. It's called Total Daddy Immersion. And an interesting thing happened to me when I was writing that, that chapter, because I thought I had very clear memories of those road trips. But when I started writing it, I realized that what I had were like, it was like a canvas that had a few brushes of color and not very keen memories. But I had, there were two memories that I had from that, from those, from those road trips. One was that we would always stop in these motels, in motels at around 3 o'clock in the afternoon and go into the swimming pool. And my father, I would dive into the swimming pool and my father would pick me up. He would be standing in the lower part of, of the swimming pool. And the other was conversations I would have with him when we, would, when we would drive because he would wake me up. We would drive with him and his wife, Adele, and me. And we would all drive in the front seat. He had this baby seat for me, or child seat actually, a 19... 50s version of a child seat, and he would put me in the front so I would be looking out and seeing the same kind of things that he was seeing and that Adele was seeing. I don't remember any, any conversations except for one when we talked about God, which is in the book, but the memory that I had of those trips always was wonderful, and it was also really wonderful for him. He would always talk about them, and he would say what a, what a great time we had and how what a great trooper I was, and and how he would wake me up at 3 in the morning, and I had not a peep out of me, and I would just love looking out into the, into the, into the uh, night, etc. So I would say, yes, that that was one of the high, high points of our bonding. I think that bonded us very much. Mexico is also a place where bullfighting is a sport, and as far as I know, it's still going on. And your father took you to bullfights. Can you tell us about that? My father, he loved the bullfight. And he grew passionate about it. So on Sundays when I, I, I would see him, because he would spend about three months in Mexico when I was living there with my mother, and then he would take me back on these road trips, back to New York where I would spend another three months. But anyway, about the bullfight, the first time I went with him, he, he told me we were going to go see this fantastic show. And the show of the bullfight is really quite impressive and wonderful for anybody, for a child, for grown-ups, up until the, the bull comes out. But before that, everything is wonderful. The costumes, the torreadores, the matadores, 
everybody, the music, and the festive air. And so anyway, we we would go, and we we went on this first this first time, and I remember feeling very excited about it, but slowly getting quite upset about what was happening to the bull. And so my father started making up stories, like explaining to me what was happening with the bull. He would say that they were having a contest, and in this contest, one of them was going to win. And, of course, the person, the one who doesn't win is always sad and gets very tired. So when they kill the bull, when they, when they, well, actually when the bull fell and because the bull is dead, I asked him, quite upset, Daddy, Daddy, is, is the bull dead? He said, no, 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 the bull is not dead. The bull is very tired, and they're going to take him away. So he thought that he could make it easier for me this way. But what I remember after that first time I went was that I kept going with him because I wanted to be with him. And it was another way of bonding with him. But every time that that scene happened of, of the toreador killing the, the bull, I would fall asleep. So I think it's a, it's a pretty difficult scene for a five-year-old, four, five, six-year-old. But also you have to remember that I wasn't the only child there. It was a, it was a Sunday outing for Mexicans. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I was a kid there. As a matter of fact, I you know, just wanted to say something. Uh, I, have, I have a friend from Colombia. And I asked her if she had gone to the bullfights, because they have bullfights in Colombia. And she said, oh, yeah, of course. I used to go when I was a kid with my parents every Sunday. So it's something that is done in, in places like in Spain also. It's all cultural. No excuse for my father, because he was not a Mexican, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he, he really loved that. Uh, you know, it's, it's that Hemingway-esque bullfight stuff, because Hemingway was yeah. addicted to the bullfights as well. Yeah, we're going to have to skip yeah, around a little bit. macho kind of Yeah, yeah. I used to call him the... Uh, the high priest of the hairy chest cult. I have mixed feelings about Hemingway, let's put it that way. We have to skip yeah. around, of course, because this book is very detailed and it's your whole life. And uh, But I wanted you... Yeah. In 1960, one of the defining incidents of Norman Mailer's life happened. It's the one that most people know him for. It's the one that everybody brings up. You say, oh, you know, Norman Mailer, he wrote The Naked and the Dead, and he wrote Armies of the Night, and uh, boy, I was there for that demonstration in Washington, the one that he wrote about. And somebody will always say, hey, didn't he stab his wife? Yeah. Yeah, can you tell us about that? Well, that, that that was our karma, my karma and my sister's karma, Adele's daughters, when we were growing up. Exactly that question. Oh, so your father's Norman Mailer. Didn't he stab his wife? Was she your mother? So it was never about whether he was a good or a bad writer. It was always about stabbing his wife. And I think that that's something that stayed with us for the rest of our lives, not only for us who had already been born, my three, my two sisters and myself, but for the, all the other kids who hadn't been born and who were born after that. There were six other kids after us, five other kids who were born, and they had to deal with it as well because this is something that stayed in everyone's mind in the in the public's mind about him. And I think it was something he had to deal with and never got over it. I would say that that was one of the hardest chapters for me to write because yeah. I had to delve into myself and what I felt. It was something that I hadn't really... It wasn't that we denied it, and we talked about it, but we didn't really talk about it. We didn't talk about the feelings. We didn't talk about why he had done it. We didn't talk about how it affected us, especially that we didn't talk about. And when I wrote that chapter, I had to really go deep into how it affected me. So I think it was probably the one defining act, violent act of my father, that he never got over, and that we also, it affected us in our lives as well. 
I'd like to remind our listeners that I'm speaking with Susan Mailer. Susan's book is titled In Another Place, With and Without My Father, Norman Mailer, published by Northampton House Press. He spent some time in Bellevue. Anybody who, who has lived in New York knows that Bellevue is a hospital, but it's noted primarily for its psychiatric ward. And he spent some time, like a lot of people in those days, not excluding myself, there was a lot of booze and drugs around, and he, he yes. perhaps yes. partook too much of that. Yes, he. Well, I think that was part, that was partly the reason that he stabbed Adele. That they were both drinking, both taking other kinds of drugs as well, and partying. And they, yeah, they they had a very intense kind of life. And then he spent after he stabbed her, he had to spend I think it was about three weeks in in Bellevue, and he had to convince the psychiatrist that he wasn't crazy because the psychiatrists were sure that he had that he was psychotic, and it was a drug induced psychosis, which, by the way, I think is probably what happened. But he kept insisting that it was an act of passion. I don't know how he did it, but he finally convinced the psychiatrist and they let him go. But he had he was on probation for about three years and he had to go and sign in there once a week with his probation officer. But I do believe that he did have a, a drug induced psychosis because he he did drink a lot and he also took other drugs. He took uppers and downers and so and he was very angry at the time. Plus, that combination of drugs makes you very angry and makes you violent. So there you go. We tend to, or I tend to think of Norman Mailer as a quintessential New Yorker, but in fact, he spent a lot of his time in New England, in in Maine, in Massachusetts, Provincetown especially. Tell us a little bit about Mm -hmm. his relationship with with New England. He loved Provincetown. My mother introduced him to Provincetown, by the way, because she was from Boston. The first time, that's where he wrote The Naked and the Dead, part of it anyway. From that moment on, from 1948 on, he fell in love with the place. And then in, the ni- in 1970, he rented a house in Mount Desert Island in Maine and also fell in love with Maine. And we went together. We, we all got together. There were six of us then, six, six children. I was at that time, I was already 20. And the sister that came after me was, I'm trying to remember, she was, she was 12 and then all the way down to about four or five years old. Anyway, my father decided he wanted to, to do an experiment, and he wanted us to be together, and he didn't want to have any, any wife at that moment. He was between wives at that moment. He didn't want any, house, any housekeeper. We were going to do all the housekeeping, and we were going to do all the cooking and shopping, and we could invite friends, and he felt that we had to bond as a family, and I think that's when we started bonding as a family actually. And after that year, he, every year for the next 10 years, we spent a month in Maine and then another month in Provincetown. I didn't because I was in another place. I was already 21, then I was, then I went back to Mexico. I met my husband, a Chilean, and then I went to Chile. So I would go and visit, but I didn't always spend the amount of time that my, my siblings spent with him. One of the things that, another thing that defined Norman Mailer, especially for those of us who followed his career as I did, because while he was a writer, I admired, number one. But the other thing was that his antics were recorded, forgive me for the using the word antics, were recorded in the newspapers. Anytime he did anything, if he, if he looked at somebody cross-eyed, it would be in the newspaper. Did you hear about Norman Mailer? He did so-and-so. But in 1971, he was asked to emcee a, a town hall meeting of feminists, yeah. <laughs> this is this is one of the 
I guess you have to say one of the more humorous but still amazing stories about Norman Mailer. I'm going to get back to you in a minute, I promise. But I want I want you to tell the story about Town Hall Norman and the women in cages remark. Okay, I'll start with the women in cages remark. He had he had mentioned that women should be locked in cages, and years later, my daughter asked him if he had really said that, and he didn't precisely answer her. But he said that he had been in on a show in Berkeley, and he had said something about women, and they had hissed at him, and he had turned around to the women and he said, "Louder, please!" And they hissed louder, and then he t- he turned to the to the guy who was interviewing him, and said, "Obedient little bitches, aren't they?" Ooh. And that was that was one of his famous remarks, one of his infamous remarks, I would say. The other question you asked about town hall, that was probably one of the most exciting and most upsetting shows of Norman Taylor that I've seen. There were four women who were who were going to be speaking. It was Diana Trilling. It was Jill Johnston, Jacqueline Ceballos, and I'm forgetting the most important one. Jermaine Greer. Jermaine Greer, of course. From the moment it started until it ended, my father was the butt of everyone's anger. They heckled him. They... They whistled at him. They told him to shut up, and he he couldn't see. So he started getting angrier and angrier and angrier, and finally he turned into the, the Norman Mailer that everybody knew. He had tried to be pleasant. He said, we're going to have a very interesting evening tonight, but it just was impossible because people were out to get him. So it was at the height of the feminist movement, and he had written this, he had said this, this phrase, women should be locked, locked up in cages, he had written a book about a woman called The Prisoner of Sex, and they had him on the dartboard, and they were going to get him, and they did. He said, I remember him saying once, that he, his hair went white, turned white after that, that evening. Well, you know what? Jermaine Greer was probably his match. Jermaine Greer was probably his... Yeah. Absolutely. She was like a, a female Norman Mailer, I thought, <laughs> yes. watching this. She was pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, I, I found her very amusing. I, yes. I, just, I just thought that... Nobody put anything over on Jermaine Greer. Let's talk a little bit about you. You you went to Barnard. I was surprised to read that, but uh, you, you went to college at Barnard, which in those days was the female end of Columbia University. I think there's no, is, I don't, I'm not sure, there's, does Barnard still exist? Is it, is it still not co-ed? Yeah, Barnard still exists. Barnard did not want to merge with, with Columbia University, so Columbia has is co-ed now, and Barnard is still a, a women's university, uh, women's college. Yeah, did you, you had something somewhat of a culture shock when you went to Barnard? Uh, can you tell us about that? Yes. Well, I, I came from Mexico, and I had I was I was used to the Mexican way of life, which was much easier, less competitive, less uh, less demanding, and all all of a sudden I was thrown into this very high powered college with very intelligent kids. And everyone was smoking pot and having sex and taking LSD and mescaline. And, you know, it was the height of the 60s. I'm talking about 1967, 68. And I was lost. I really didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to study. I didn't know. I wasn't interested in my subjects. I missed Mexico very much. And so the first year I was there was very difficult for me. But then the second year, no, at the end of that first year, actually, it was in the spring of 1968, the Columbia sit-ins, the Columbia Revolution, as it was called, happened. And I was part of it. And that helped me become a college student. After that, I felt like I had finally arrived in college. 
It was a very interesting time, by the way, to be in to be in, in New York and to be in the United States. Yeah, I was in New York in those days, and I was in the streets a lot, let's put it that way. You decided to go to graduate school in Boulder, Colorado, and talk about a, a culture shock going from New York to Boulder. I've been in Boulder, and it's... I don't want to say it's the antithesis of New York attitude, but it's it's pretty much in that spectrum, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I was so surprised when I went to when I got to Boulder and everybody would say hi to me on the streets and everybody was so good looking and so athletic, whereas in New York nobody was athletic and nobody nobody said hello to you ever. So <laughs> it was it was a good shock by the way. It was and I think you're right, it was the antithesis of of, of New York City. And I loved it. I had a great time. Excellent. I did. You dropped out of. You were in pre med in those days. Were you going to be a psychiatrist? Was that the, was that your ambition? Yeah, that was the idea. I wanted to be a psychiatrist, but I dropped out because I realized I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't. Under, I had to take all these pre med courses, mm-hmm. and I didn't understand calculus. It was like Chinese for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand physics. And I didn't like chemistry, so I thought, what, what the hell am I doing? I can't, I can't be a doctor. I can't be an MD. So I decided to become a psychologist, which really was much better for me. Mm-hmm. Now, you eventually decided you, 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 wanted, you dropped out of pre-med and you went back to Mexico. And uh, yes. this is, well, you, you met your husband, Marco, after, oh, you, you got a, a, almost a dream job with Televisa in, in, in uh, Mexico City. That, I thought that would be a very, a very cool thing for you. Tell us about that. Oh, that was fantastic. I, I was in Mexico. Um, I had just gone, gotten over a, rela- a really bad relationship I had with a, with a Mexican guy in which I was reliving my father's relationships with his women. And when I realized it, I thought, okay, this is it. I, I just don't want to, I, I want out from this relationship. So after that, I decided I wanted to have a good job because I had been teaching English up until that point. So I thought, okay, I, I want a good job, and I asked my dad if he could get in touch with Carlos Fuentes or somebody, a writer that he knew in Mexico. So he called Carlos Fuentes or wrote him a letter, and Carlos immediately called me and invited me to his house. And as we were talking, his house, by the way, was fantastic. It was so beautiful, full of Mexican arts and crafts and, and uh, art, and he was a very handsome and elegant man. Anyway, he called his friend, Emilio Azcárraga, in, in Televisa, who's the owner of Televisa and the CEO of Televisa at, at that time. And I got a job as public relations in a program that was just starting, and it was a cultural program. And they wanted to invite my father. So it was, it was a marriage of convenience, as you can see. It was a great time while I was there. A couple of things happened at the same time. You met Marco, and this, I, this blew my mind because here you are in Mexico, and you, you managed to meet a Turkish Sephardic Jew in Mexico. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, like most Ashkenazi Jews from New York, we find Sephardic Jews uh, somewhat exotic. Uh, you, you actually managed to meet and hook up with one. Well, you know, when my grandmother found out that I, that I had actually hooked up with a, with a Jew, that a Sephardic Jew, she was so happy. This is the same grandmother that I grew up with, with Grandma Fanny. Uh, she was so happy because she was sure I would, I would marry a non-Jew, so this really made her very happy. She said, oh, you know, Moses, Maimonides, and the Sephardic <laughs> Jews, they're so cultured. They're so, they, they, they have a wonderful history, and she was very enchanted by Marco. But I really didn't plan it, I promise. I just, I was, I was going out with Mexicans who were not Jewish, and I met this guy who was 
so good looking and he had the romantic aura of the exile because he had been working for the Allende government from 1970 to 1973 and then he had to leave Chile because of the coup, Pinochet coup. So he arrived in Mexico in 1974 and I met him in 1975. We worked in the same place. We'd, I didn't work in Televisa anymore. I worked in a publishing company, a really big publishing company. And he worked there, too. So I met him. We became friends. And later on, we fell in love. And we're still married. Excellent. Mazel tov, as, as, as they say. Like that, yeah. That's 40, 40 years of marriage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the same time, Norman met Norris. And uh, Norris was a bit of a surprise, right? Oh, my God, was she a surprise. She was my age, drop-dead gorgeous, a model, almost six feet tall. I'm five foot two. Not anymore, but I used to be five foot two. I'm probably five foot one now. So meeting her was quite a shock, especially, you know, this was the sixth wife. And I thought, well, I thought that he was going to stay with Carol, but I guess it wasn't his idea. Anyway, it was a shock to meet, uh, to meet this woman who could have been my friend who was my, my peer, and she was my father's lover and then my father's wife, and was his wife for 32 years. We actually became good friends, you know. We, 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 I got to love her very much. We, became to, we got to be friends, close. Her son I'm very close to. Sadly, she passed away from cancer about three years after my father died. And my father died in 2007, and she died in 2010. And so her son, is John Mailer, is... I'm very close to as well. That's nice. Uh, I think there's sort of a kind of carryover, you know, that he feels I'm sort of like his surrogate mother or his older sister kind of thing. Yeah, before I, I ended the interview, which we only have a few minutes left, but I also I want to ask you about your relationship to your half-siblings uh, and, and what that's like. But first, I want to talk about one more. Oh, man, when this happened, I said, I can't believe that he fell for this. I'm talking about Jack Abbott. You want to tell us about yeah. Jack Abbott and Norman's relationship with, with Jack Abbott? My father had written a book that got the Pulitzer Prize. It was called The Executioner's Song. And it was about a guy, Gary Gilmore, who had been in jail most of his life. And when he came out around the age of 35, he was at, for about two weeks, fell in love with a woman. And two or three weeks later, he killed two people in Utah. And so my father wrote an incredible book about this, about this incident and about everything that surrounded it, his girlfriend, his family, Utah, et cetera, and all the press that he got because he wanted to be shot. He, want, not, he, didn't, want, he didn't want any appeals. He just wanted to be shot. He didn't want to spend the rest of his life in, in prison. During that time, my father got letters from a guy, a man whose name was Jack Abbott, who told him about, he said, if you want to know about what prison life is like, I can tell you about it. And he wrote him... I, from what I gather, wonderful letters that were later published in a book that was called In the Belly of the Beast. My father thought, being a Pygmalion, because he had that, that characteristic, he thought he could change people, and he always wanted to change people. So he thought he could change Jack Abbott. He thought he could, he could mentor him. And he helped him get out of jail. That, at least that's what my father thought. Together with a few other people, also celebrities, although not quite as famous as my father, and the, but the real reason that Jack Abbott got out of jail was because he had been a snitch, and he snitched on uh, several police officers who were doing some kind of corruption thing in the jail, so they let him out. He was out on parole. 
He was out on parole for six weeks, and he also killed somebody in a bar. It was it was that kind of thing that you mentioned. That it was the kind of thing of oh my god, I can't believe he did. I can't believe he would fall for this. My exactly. father. Exactly. Yeah. How could he do this? How could he fall for this? And and by the way, Norris was furious at him. She was against his being on parole, being in the house, having a, any kind of social gatherings with him. But my father was adamant. He really thought that this guy had a chance to make it out there in the world, but he didn't. He didn't. He just, he had no social clues on how to get along in the world. Only, he, he only knew about how to get along in jail. Hmm. Anyway, I think that was, what, what, that was the other regret that my father had for the rest of his life. He never got over it, I would say. Yeah, this, was, this is a mistake of naivete and hope, good hopes for this guy. And the people I talked to about it just said, he's being hustled. I mean, clearly Jack Abbott is hustling Norman Mailer. That's the way we looked at it. Of course, we were a lot more cynical in those days. What can I tell you? Before we, before we end up, tell us about Provincetown. Tell us about your father's last days in Provincetown. There's one thing specifically that uh, th- this was the most moving thing to me in the whole book was the last drink that Norman Mailer had and the Kaddish that you said for him. Can you give us a, a couple of minutes mm-hmm. on that? We, we were at the hospital, and Father had been 40 days in the hospital, and he was full of tubes, and, and he was dying. And finally, the, the doctors, after really trying to get him better, they, they realized that there was just no way that he was going to leave the hospital and that he was probably going to die in the next 24 hours. So they took away all the tubes, and they said, well, we're going to put him in another room, and you can say goodbye to him in this other room. It's not going to be the ICU. It's going to be like a bedroom. And my brother, Michael, and my cousin, Peter, my Aunt Barbara's son, had this incredible idea of having a last drink with him. So we asked him if he could have a drink, and the, and the doctor said, sure, whatever he wants. So they went out and they bought rum, orange juice, soda, and they, they made a Presbyterian for him. That was the drink, the drink that he liked, which was one-third of each of those, one-third rum, one-third orange juice, one-third soda. And they... My father's eyes lit up when they told him that he was going to have a drink. And we all stood around, and we were all there, all nine of us, plus my aunt and my cousin Peter. He took a sip. First funny thing happened. I know, I know we don't have very much time, but I just want to say that my father hated plastic. <laughs> and <laughs> they, had made the, they had made the drink in a plastic cup with a plastic straw. So my father said, absolutely. He couldn't speak at that point. So he said, you know, he, he waved to us and said, no, I can't do it this way. So we found a glass, took out the straw, he took a drink, he took a sip, and then he told us, he motioned to all of us to take a, to take a sip. And we all did, and we felt so close at that moment. And I remember my, my sister Kate said, Dad, are you afraid? And he sort of waved his hand and said, mm, maybe. And my brother Michael said, uh, this is going to be a great adventure, and my father sort of looked up and said, with his eyes, well, who knows? Who knows what kind of an adventure it'll be? And then he was taken to this other room. But it was a wonderful, beautiful moment that brought us all together, created a, a kind of emotional sibling, family, familial tra- tapestry that still we, sh- we still have. We've had for, you know, we've had it for a very long time, but that cemented it. And now we see each other every year in Provincetown for at least a week. All of us get together. It's like a ritual that we have, and we always try to keep to it. Oh, good. That sets up my next question. Is and I know you've spoken to your half-siblings about 
their relationship with Norman and about what what they feel about his life and their own lives with him. Well, what, is there any you know anything you can come up with that kind of encapsulates their experiences? I think we all have different experiences, Ed. I, I, when I was writing the memoir, I I didn't really ask them about. I would ask them about certain episodes and what was their impression of those episodes. But now that I now that the book is finished and they've read it. All of them have commented, and one thing that they've commented is how much they didn't know about my dad, because I was, I'm the oldest. So I knew him through, I knew all the wives, I knew all the siblings, and whereas my sister Maggie, who's the youngest woman, she's the, the youngest of all of us and the, of the women, there were a lot of things that she didn't know, and she said that for her it was an eye-opener. For, for John it was an eye-opener. He's the youngest of all of us. Whereas for Danielle and Elizabeth, who are the ones who have come after me, it, it wasn't quite as much. But they knew nothing about my life in Mexico. They knew very little about my life in, in Chile. So I would say that my book is my version of my relationship with Dad and my relationship with our family. And I think if each one of us wrote a, wrote a memoir it would, and we put all those memoirs together, then you would have a good idea of what the family was like. But I would insist that my book is my version. And each one of us has a different... It's all similar, but it's all—it's also slightly different. Yes, that's even true in a family of four with two kids. Uh, it's like that yeah. anyway. Yeah. It's really been delightful speaking with you. I've been speaking with Susan Mailer. She's the daughter of Norman Mailer. The title of her book is In Another Place, With and Without My Father, Norman Mailer, published by Northampton Press. Thank you so much for calling from a different continent. I think this is the first time that's ever happened for, with me, and it's been a pleasure to speak with yeah. you. It's been a pleasure here, Ed, too, and thank you very much for having me on your show. By the way, you can get the book on Amazon online, Barnes & Noble, <laughs> and Book Depository, and Books A Million. So, I normally ask that question. Thank you for doing that. Thank you so okay. much. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Author, Author, produced at the studios of All Classical KQAC-FM in Portland. My name is Ed Goldberg. You can find these programs at our website, allclassical.org slash author. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back soon.